Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. This year's Adelaide Festival premiered a new work by composer Nigel Westlake and singer-songwriter Lior, celebrating the life of William Cooper. Who, you may ask, if you've never heard the name? He's one more distinguished First Nations figure that we should all know about. Bain Atwood's meticulous biography of Cooper tells the story of a truly remarkable Yorta Yorta man from Victoria, born in 1860 or 61, who had a profound impact on his people and on the wider world. He's best known for bringing a petition to the German consulate in Melbourne, protesting against the brutality of Kristallnacht and the persecution of the Jews. But Atwood argues that there is much more to his story than that one episode. For example, that Cooper petitioned the British King for black representation and was also a founder of the Australian Aborigines League in 1933. Bain Atwood is a professor of history at Monash, specialising in the history of colonialism. I spoke to him via Zoom. Bain, welcome to Life Sentences. Thanks very much, Caroline. Could you start by telling us who William Cooper was? William Cooper was a Yorta Yorta man, so his country was up on the Murray River, going along the border between what we now know of as Victoria and New South Wales. He was born, as far as we can establish, in 1860, and he lived a long life. Uh, he didn't die until 1941. And he's best known to us for the political work that he did in the last several years of his life. So this, by this time, he's already in his 70s. He leaves his own country, goes down to Melbourne, goes down to Melbourne because he recognises that in order to do the political work that he wants to do, he needs the resources of a large city. So he goes down, as far as we know, to Melbourne in 1933. He finds somewhere to live in Footscray, and he lives with his wife, third wife, for the next seven years in Footscray. And soon after he goes down to Melbourne, he has drawn up a petition to the British King. And in my view, this is the most important political campaign that he, that he conducted. Okay, so we'll come back to the petition in a moment. Now, you are an academic. You are a historian of Australian colonial history with an obviously particular reference to Aboriginal history. What made you want to write this biography and what were the key challenges in doing so? I've been interested in William Cook for a long time. Many years ago now, I researched and wrote a book which was eventually published in 2003 called Rights for Aborigines. And in two chapters in that book, I spent quite a lot of time discussing William Cooper. He fascinated me then and he's continued to fascinate me. And I thought that there were particular reasons, so to speak, for me to, to go back to William Cooper and write some more about him. When I first wrote about him 20 or more years ago, I was focusing on, on his political work, that last decade or last several years of his life. Sure, I knew a little bit, some might say quite a bit, about his early life, the forces that made him, that shaped him, that made mm. him the man he was. But my knowledge was nonetheless relatively sketchy. But that was one reason. A second reason was that I'd become convinced that 
what academic historians should do, at least in some of our work, is practice what academic historians call Aboriginal history. Now, Aboriginal history is a, is a particular kind of approach to the past, and I characterize that approach like this. Now, first of all, it's focusing on Aboriginal people rather than us, us being, let's assume, white fellows, people who are not Aboriginal. That Aboriginal people, in other words, should be there and center, the subjects of the history. That secondly, we should see to what degree they were able to shape their world. It's what historians often call agency. Mm. Aboriginal history tries to focus on Aboriginal perspectives, how they saw the past, how they saw what they were doing. Fourthly, Aboriginal history comprises of an approach which tries to recover the past by looking at, if you like, Aboriginal words, Aboriginal voices, Aboriginal sources. I very much became aware that William Cooper had come to be seen in a particular way. Now, 20 years ago, one of my colleagues, Andrew Marcus, who was the first academic historian to do work on Cooper, one of my colleagues, Andrew Marcus, and I compiled a collection of historical documents called Thinking Black, historical documents of William Cooper's political campaigns. And in the introduction, we wrote that we thought that William Cooper was little known outside of his own family, some Aboriginal communities, and you know, a very small number of, of, of non-Aboriginal Australians, and that he deserved to be better known. Well, what's happened across the last 20 years is that Cooper has become much better known. But I th was of the opinion, and I'm very much still of the opinion, that the way in which Cooper had come to be known and recognised was in some ways deeply problematic. Mm. And the way that Cooper has come to be known is, so to speak, as the man who stood up to Hitler. I wanted to, if you like, put a, a more historically informed and richer picture of Cooper. And that fueled a good part of why I returned to William Cooper and, and, and wrote this, this biography. Aboriginal people, we might say, have an oral culture. This is the way they remember the past primarily. Certainly this was true in Cooper's lifetime, but it remains, I think, to a large degree true. One of the ways in which we perhaps could put it is in the terms that Depeche Chakrabarti, one of the world's best-known post-colonial historians, have put it. He says, Indigenous people are history poor. Now, what he means by history poor is that they tend to be poor in the resources that the academic discipline of history most prizes, namely mm. written historical sources, as I said, created more or less at the time of the events. And so whatever you do when you try to do Aboriginal history, you encounter this problem. Are there any historical sources that are created by Aboriginal people at the time of the events? And the answer to a very large degree is that there are very few sources. Now, when more particularly one tries to write a, as I style my book, William Cooper, a life story or what some people would call a biography, 
The problem is even more because you have to find historical sources that are created by that particular figure, in this case, William Cooper. And then further to that, there's the matter of well, what were the resources or, if you like, the capacity of a man like William Cooper to preserve what he wrote? Or is that the wrong question? Is the question, did he have any interest in preserving what he wrote? And the answer is probably no on both counts, that his capacity to preserve and his interest in preserving the written word, his written word, was really rather limited. So when you're usually writing, when an academic historian is writing a biography, what a historian will often rely on, certainly hope for, is a vast private archive, if you like. Mm. Private papers. Cooper really has no private papers. He left no private papers. There is, what, a couple of personal letters he writes very near the end of his life, which he sends to the child of one of the missionaries in which he was closely associated with. And, of course, in saying that we want personal papers, I guess we're saying that so often when we're writing a biography, the biographer at least hopes that that private archive will shed light on the person, him or herself, mm. that we will get to know them quite deeply as, as a human being. And as I worked on this biography, I realized that I didn't feel I, I knew him in a personal sense very well. Yes, I knew what he did politically because the letters, hundreds and hundreds of letters, I suppose we'd say, that he wrote to government, whether it was the state government or the federal government, have been preserved in state archives. He also wrote to missionaries, and one missionary in particular, the letters that Cooper wrote to him are part of that missionary's personal, personal papers. So I knew what he did, at least what he did politically. But what he was like as a man, for example, did he have a sense of humour? Did he get <laughs> angry? I, I really, at least as far as the historical record goes, I, I didn't have the, the sources that I, that an academic historian, like, at least like myself, would, would want or, or prefer to, to have. And then further to that, because of the period in which he lived, so he died something like 80 years ago, mm. very, very few of those who we could say were his contemporaries are still alive. One of his grandsons, Boydie Turner, is still alive, going strong in his early 90s. And he lived with his grandfather in Footscray, for some period of time in the 1930s and has some memories of his grandfather. But academic historians tend, or I think they should be, somewhat cautious in how much weight we place on doing oral history. I certainly um, interviewed Uncle Boydie or place much weight on oral tradition, because we know what the nature of memory is like. We know that we remember some things very well in the past and other things much less well. So, for example, I think it's clear that Uncle Boydie remembers in, in, in detail the house in which he lived with his grandfather for some time in Footscray in the 1930s, that he remembers what the two front rooms 
live in. So this is what we might say is part of everyday life. And I think it's generally believed that we can remember details that are part of our everyday life that are, if you like, part of repetition. We go into one room again and again and again. But when it comes to, if you like, one-off events, I think it's clear that we struggle to remember where it fits in what a historian would call historical chronology. Was it before this event or after that event? All you know, important specific matters that a historian will think is really important if we're going to understand what, what happened. It's clear that while there are no private papers for Cooper, there are photos. And academic historians of Indigenous people have often commented that pictures are immensely important to Indigenous people, have long been important. And if they don't keep any written record, they keep photographs. Mm. And one of the surprises, perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised, but one of the surprises in writing this book is that I learned there were photographs of Cooper that hadn't entered any public library or archive, and which I had never seen. I'd seen quite a number of photographs of Cooper, and rather, what would we say, naively or stupidly, I thought that that was the sum total of the photographs. I should have realised that the family would have would have photographs. So, and indeed they do. And what's the saying that a photo is worth a thousand words or something, some, something like that? And so we do have photos, and like words, of course, they're subject to interpretation. And so, you know, part of, I suppose, my task in writing this biography was, you know, to think hard about, well, what sources were available and to make more of the photographs than, than I might usually, usually make. Because this told you something not only about the past, but how he thought of himself as family. I was very struck by the photographs in your book. And of course, he was a very distinguished looking man. So in a photograph, you don't have to search for him in the photograph. He just jumps out at you because he is so distinguished, partly because of his very, very white moustache. But can I just go back to the beginning? Can I go back to you giving us the sort of context for where this story begins? And can you tell us where he grew up and what is there today. Cooper is born on the banks of the Murray, as far as we can work out, in 1860. By this time, his people have been thoroughly dispossessed of their land. That starts 20 years earlier. They've been decimated. But nonetheless, in relative terms, and this is the point, in relative terms, they were still able to, as I said, stay on country. And they had choices. They didn't have to work for the pastoralists. And they could negotiate with the pastoralists. I mean, the pastoralists could not afford to say, well, you know, we're going to treat you really poorly, really badly. We are not going to pay you in wages or pay you enough in kind because the Aboriginal people would say, well, you know, we have we have other resources. It's also the case that by the 1860s, there is a, at least as far as the Victorian side of the river, there is a board for the protection of Aborigines. They have honorary guardians. The guardians provide some resources to Aboriginal people, blankets, and the like. Then moving on from that, in the early to mid-1870s, two missionaries, Daniel and Janet Matthews, decide that they're going to form a mission or mission station 
on the Murray River, relatively near to Echuca. And this is a really important moment in, in Cooper's life. By this time, he's 13 or 14 in the times of the day. You might say he's no longer a child because as we know in the 19th century, whether you're Aboriginal or not, you enter the workforce at a very young age. By this stage, he has acquired, you might say most of the skills required of a, of a pastoral worker. It's also the case that in his early childhood, he is taken by one of the pastoralists, a man by the name of O'Shaughnessy, who was a leading political figure in Victoria. He's taken by O'Shaughnessy down to live with him and his family in Melbourne. And we don't know very much at all about those years in Cooper's life, but you get some sense that he is experiencing a wider world than he would have otherwise have done if he had remained on his own country. So by the time he encounters the Matthews, these missionaries, he's seen a little bit of the world. And we already know that he has this passionate interest or desire in learning how to read and write. He's more mm -hmm. or less teaching himself. He encounters these missionaries. And I suppose to cut a long story short, the missionaries are important in a number of respects. First of all, they believe that Aboriginal people uh, of the same blood, so to speak, as white fellows, that they, that they too, if you like, are the children of God, that they, they're not radically different. They're not of you know, another race that are of, the same, are of the same kind. And they believe that Aboriginal people are the first owners, the original possessors of the soil. They recognise that they have been dispossessed of the soil and they believe that colonial Australia, that white fellows owe them something in return for dispossessing them, that they owe them, in their terms, civilization and Christianity. So the missionaries see this, you know, as, as a great gift, and that it's important that Aboriginal people are provided this gift. But perhaps even more important than that, the missionaries, because they believe Aboriginal people, are the original possessors of the soil, that it's their country. And they make that clear to Cooper. And because they have connections with the anti-slavery movement, they give, I think, Cooper what we might call a political language, a way of understanding their position in colonial Australia. And they confirm, at the very least, they confirm for Aboriginal people that they, that they have rights. And they give them some of the means, or they introduce to them some of the means to conduct a political struggle. The mission that was originally known as Maloga is now known as Kamragunja, which means our home in Yorta Yorta. William Cooper and his family are buried there. William Cooper learnt to read and write on the mission where the Bible was central to his development. One story in particular resonated with him. The book of Exodus might have been a particularly important text in terms of the idea of the Jews being dispossessed and wandering for years in the desert in order to find a homeland. Can you just elaborate on that in the light of 
the event for which William Cooper is possibly best known, even though your book is an attempt to correct the balance of what we should know about him? We know that part of what the missionaries do, and particularly after the visit of a famous African-American singing group, the Fisk Jubilee Singers, that they start singing some of the songs that the Fisk Jubilee Singers made famous, and they translate a particular song into Yorta Yorta. And this is really strong about, you know, dispossession and wandering in the desert and, and returning to place. And music clearly becomes enormously important for a whole number of reasons to the Yorta Yorta. And then all those years later, in the 1930s, in Melbourne, for a number of reasons, one of them being that they need to raise funds to be able to do their political work, the Kamaragunja Choir, at Cooper's request, performs in a series of concerts. And we might say that one of the highlights is that they sing the song that I, that, that I just mentioned. Sadly, there is no recording of the Kamaragunja Choir, but Bain has pointed me to this recording of a hymn it would have sung, translated into Yorta Yorta and performed here by the Hummingbird Choir. It's called Nara Burafera and envisions the return of the dispossessed to their homeland. Petitions are a very popular way of appealing to higher authorities in the period that we're talking about. What were the sorts of things that people petitioned for generally? Who did they direct petitions to? And generally, and and we should try and keep this part of the answer brief, how successful were petitions overall? Well, how about we discuss this just in regard to Cooper and the Yorta Yorta? So okay. these petitions petitions were directed to what they saw as the highest forms of authority. So first of all, the governor of New South Wales, and then later, as I said, to the British king. So this is King George V. This is King George V when it's drawn up, and it's King George VI at the time it's submitted. <laughs> <laughs> and these petitions, like most petitions, are really calling on a higher form of authority to provide them with something important to relieve them from, if you like, some loss or, or suffering. So the earliest petitions that the Yorta Yorta are involved in are calling on forms of authority to grant them land at either Maloga or in relation to, to Kamaragunja. And they are often premised on an assumption or a claim that 
the British Crown in some form or another has given particular undertakings, assumed particular responsibilities for Aboriginal people at some point in the past. And in effect, these petitions are seeking at the very least to remind the British Crown, whether it's the governor or the king or even governments in Australia, that they have incurred, if you like, a historical responsibility. Mm. And they're calling upon them. They're not just reminding them of that. They're calling upon them to act in terms of that. So if you like, th- these these could be said, although I don't say this in the book, you could say that there's something somewhat akin to a, a treaty, a treaty being an agreement, a historical agreement, where the Crown undertakes or promises to do something. Now, as we know, the British Crown never made treaties in Australia. They did almost everywhere else in the empire, I suppose, from the Australian point of view, most famously in New Zealand with the Treaty of Waitangi of 1840. But I guess part of what I'm trying to say here is that treaties or similar things to treaties seem to inform, at the very least, Cooper's petition to the king. He is asking for a black representation as a black member of parliament. That's what he wants. Well, in a sense, is this three things we might say that he's seeking in the petition. One, he's calling upon the British monarch to intervene to ensure that Aboriginal people do not become extinct. Mm -hmm. Come back to the notion of extinction, so to speak, later. Secondly, he's asking for better conditions. And thirdly, he's asking for Aboriginal people to be represented in the federal parliament. Now, as you and your listeners will have gathered, those first two things are, you might say, relatively vague or imprecise, whereas by comparison, this request or demand for parliamentary representation is is precise. Mm. Now, the way it's formulated in the petition is simply in terms of a parliamentary representative for for Aboriginal people. In the petition, it does not specify whether that person is going to be Aboriginal or white. What they were really wanting was an Aboriginal representative. I mean, at the very least, if it was going to be a white fellow, he and they were talking about me, had to be sympathetic to Aboriginal people. But it's also the case that he didn't think that white fellows, however sympathetic they were to Aboriginal people, could, in his words, think black. Exactly. Thinking black. And we can come back to that. So, what happens, at least, I think, at the point that the petition is launched, and then as Cooper circulates it, but certainly when it comes to the point in 1937 when he decides to submit it to the federal government, the thing that he's most drawing attention to, and which the contemporary press is responding to, is this request for parliamentary representation. How did he go about getting signatures for the petition? He got about 2,000. Most of those were makings of marks. They weren't necessarily signatures as we would know them. But did he travel with the petition? How did he, how did he gather those marks? He's poor. Sometimes he can't even afford the cost of printing the petition forms, posting letters, finding the money for a postage stamp. None of this is straight, mm. straightforward. Mm. It's also the case that his writing is rather poor, and maybe we'll come back to that. So just making himself understood 
is, is, is hard work. First of all, he believes, and has good reason to believe, that he, he needs the permission of the various protection boards around the country, with the exception of Tasmania, who by this time claim they don't have any Aboriginal people, so they don't have a protection board. He believes he needs to seek the permission of the, the chief protectors, because if he doesn't seek that, the chances are that they will refuse to allow Aboriginal people to sign the petition. Now, this takes months. He gets very frustrated. Why does it take so long, he asks, for these chief protectors to respond? Some of them are deeply suspicious. In one case, they ask the Victorian Protection Board, who is this fellow Cooper? And Cooper sends, and, and the board sends a policeman to Cooper's door to make some inquiries. Who is this? Is he an honourable man? So on and so forth. <laughs> anyway, he finally gets permission. And, but he, he travels within Victoria. There's some evidence of that, but further afield. He just doesn't have the resources to do that. So he's reliant on others. He's reliant on other Aboriginal people, William Ferguson in New South Wales, one of the Harrises, either William or Norman, in Western Australia. He's reliant on, on missionaries and church men or women that he's mm. come to know. And sadly, and we perhaps can come back and try and understand why this is the case, while we have the petition itself, the petition role, as it's called, part of the petition that has the signatures, is nowhere to be found. So it's submitted to the federal government. A senior public servant does, if you like, an analysis of who has signed the petition. In my view, he does this in order to try and discredit the petition. What mm. he says as well, as some of them are only signed with their mark. I think that's what he says. He also says, well, most of them are from missions. In other words, he's saying, well, how representative is this and how authentic is this petition? Perhaps we should say here, just to make this clear, is that Cooper decides, and I think this is interesting, Cooper decides that he's only going to ask Aboriginal people to sign this petition. So he sees his organisation that he forms roughly the same time as he draws up the petition, the Australian Aborigines League. He sees this as an Aboriginal organisation. It is to speak for Aboriginal people, and it's unusual for the time. There's other political organisations, Aboriginal political organisations, at this time, before this time. But his organisation seeks to speak for all Aboriginal people in Australia. I'm not saying you know, um, he, he, he brings that off, so to speak, but it's not, even though it's very much a yorta yorta organisation, he's trying to speak on behalf of other Aboriginal people. But I think this is a really important point. He sees his organisation as an Aboriginal organisation. He sees the petition. I mean, we might call the petition as a kind of Aboriginal voice. Mm -hmm. This importance of trying to make whitefellas understand what Aboriginal people, how they, what they want, how they see the world. The fact of the matter is that the petition was not successful. It got as far as government and government did not submit it to the king. So this must have been an enormous disappointment to him. Enormous disappointment. I mean, none of what he does, or hardly any of what he does in all this political campaigning, succeeds. Government at the time, apart from anything else, while it's inclined to listen to white humanitarian, as we call them, humanitarian organisations, particular white figures like the anthropologist A.P. Elkin, they're not much inclined to listen to what Aboriginal people have to say. They have a very poor opinion of them. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm generalising, but that's 
that's by and large true. But he doesn't. He doesn't give up, despite he that. doesn't. He's boy, is he determined. He's he's got determination in spades, and you know those who advise him. There's a couple of white folks, a woman by the name of Helen Bailey, and then later a man by the name of Arthur Bordeaux, provide you could say an enormous amount of help in the years that he's in Melbourne. They have political contacts. Well, Bailey does. She knows ministers. She's petitioned ministers. She's been part of deputations to ministers. She facilitates Cooper and the members of the league meeting some of these ministers. Bordeaux has the kind of writing skills that Cooper would have loved to have but didn't have. So most of Cooper's letters are prepared by this man, Arthur Bordeaux. And so there's all this work drawing up these letters, sending them, and at one point, when Cooper's despairing, this is before, not all that long before he decides to submit the petition to the king to the federal government. And he says something like, clearly quoting a passage in the Bible, we asked for bread. Um, does he then go and say, you know, we were given a stone? What, what, yes, whatever, you know, yes the passage that's the is. quote. That's the quote. Yeah, and, and, and you can see that he's, he's frustrated. I want to jump forward to the next petition, though, because this is the one which, in a way, your book is, is as you say, an attempt to correct a sort of misconception or a mythology that surrounds William Cooper as the man who stood up to Hitler. So in the time following what we know as Kristallnacht in November 1938, he draws up a different kind of petition entirely. What prompts this and what really is his objective in delivering a petition to the German consulate in Melbourne? I'm of the view that to be able to understand it, we need to grasp that fundamentally it's a political act, that it's strategic. I mean, this is the nature of politics. You be strategic and you try and put a case in the best possible terms. And what Cooper is trying to do here, and the League is trying to do, I believe, is to draw attention, not so much to Nazi German persecution of Jews, but rather to draw attention to what he and the League see as a parallel mm. between the Nazi German persecution of Jews or the Jewish minority, as Cooper and the League put it, and the persecution by at least some Australian governments of Aboriginal people as a minority. And we know that before the petition, he's talking what I would loosely call the language of minority rights. He's draw, He knows what's going on in, in Europe. He knows what's happening to what are called, you know, formulated as minority peoples. And I think he sees an opportunity here in the wake of Crystal and this concern amongst many Australians for the persecution of Jews to make a point, well, it's this is what's going on here. And we know that after this, they try and present this petition to the German consulate that he says on a number of occasions, well, there's all this concern in Australia about these European minorities. What about us as a minority? And then mm. a year later or so, Doug Nichols, 
his main protege in the Australian Aborigines League, also says the same thing. The way the story works is that rather than in telling the story of Cooper as the man who stood up to Hitler, he is recognised not because of his people's loss and suffering, Mm. but because he is deemed to recognise the loss and suffering of Jewish people. So in a sense, the main subjects of the story are actually Jewish people, not Aboriginal people. But he is being recognised because he recognises the suffering of Jewish people. And in my view, this is a misunderstanding, as I've already indicated, of what Cooper was actually trying to do. It's also an understanding of Cooper that leeches or guts his work of its political purpose. He's simply represented as this compassionate, empathetic man. I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree that Cooper was compassionate. and No, but I mean, one version of the story is a kind of selfless, romantic story, and the other, as you say, is strategic and self-interested. In the closing months of 1937, Cooper and his organisation, along with William Ferguson, who was one of the leaders of the New South Wales Aborigines Progressive Association, meet in Melbourne. And at that meeting, Cooper proposes that they should hold a day of mourning, or what later came to be called, full title, a day of mourning and protest, on the 26th of January, 1938, in other words, the sesquicentenary of, what shall we call it, the British invasion of what we now know as Australia. And this is what the League and the Aborigines Progressive Association decide to do because this event is marking the beginning of colonisation and Port Jackson, Botany Bay, Sydney. The Day of Mourning is held by these organisations in Sydney. Cooper and Doug Nichols and a number of members of the League, Margaret Tucker, drive all the way up to Sydney and they are part of this Day of Mourning. And the point is to say, well, you white fellas are celebrating. What on earth do we have to celebrate on what we now know of as Australia Day? This, Cooper was saying, is a day of mourning. And he, and this I think was again very much part of, of his Christianity, that he had a, if you'd like, a, a religious view of how time unfolded. And there would be days of mourning, there would be days of hope. Mm. And that he believed that it was fundamental that Aboriginal people do what they could to say, well, Try and look at it from our point of view. And this links very closely, I think, with his notion of thinking black, which I, I think we, we, should, we should talk about. So this, this phrase, thinking black, was not Cooper's formulation. It was formulated by a missionary in the, in the early 20th century. And for Cooper, as I said before, he realised that white folks could be sympathetic. But he said, however sympathetic they are, they don't think like blackfellas. And I believe what he was saying was 
Aboriginal people think in a particular way, primarily because of their historical experience. And at some point he says to the whitefellas, well, you're the conquerors and we're the sufferers. So he's saying, well, we are positioned differently, so to speak, in this nation because we were the sufferers of colonisation. And so we see the world differently to the way you see it. And more to the point, he's saying, or more specifically, he's saying, if you're going to try, if you're going to have any capacity to draw up good government policy, let alone to implement it, you need our views. You mm. can't do this otherwise. And so, in a sense, what he's saying is, give us the opportunity, give us a, a member of parliament who can truly represent us, whether they're Aboriginal or white, who can truly represent our views, so that you can know our views and make better policy. And so, of course, he would be, I suppose, dismayed 90 years after he drew up this petition that this is still, Aboriginal people are still struggling in their eyes to be listened to and that there's still a lack of provision in our federal political system for an Aboriginal voice to be expressed and to be heard. You have corrected the history in terms of how we see William Cooper as much more than just the man who stood up to Hitler. But what do you believe fundamentally his legacy to be today? I think his legacy lies in the fact that it was vitally important for Aboriginal people to represent themselves, Mm. to create a situation where whitefellas could, so to speak, get it from the horse's mouth, that they weren't relying on whitefellas, if you like, mediating their voice, and that he believed that Aboriginal organisation was was vital to that, that it had to be an organised Aboriginal voice. I think that's that's his, his main legacy. There is much more to the story of William Cooper, but Bain Atwood's biography also illustrates what's missing from it, as he says himself, a personal sense of the man and what he was like. When I asked Bain whether he had a favourite biography that was a touchstone for him, he replied that it was Gita Sereni's epic doorstop, Albert Speer, His Battle with Truth, a remarkable 12-year project of meticulous investigation and psychological insight that is a landmark biography for many reasons. Bain Atwood may be frustrated that the story of William Cooper has been reduced to a story about his stance against Hitler. But for me, it provides an entry point to discovering more about this remarkable man. We all have to start somewhere. I was lucky enough to hear a performance of Napa William Cooper and wanted to end this episode with a bit of this anthemic and timely piece about finding one's voice and not staying silent in the face of injustice. So we'll go out with this performance by the Australian Youth Orchestra, recorded by ABC Classics. The female vocalist you will hear singing in Yorta Yorta is Dr Lou Bennett, alongside Lior. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and edited by Kira Jordan for Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and we pay our respects to traditional owners of the land, past and present. This episode was made with a grant from Create New South Wales, and I would like to thank them for their support. We had no land.
nation who made no distinction who it sent off to fight.